First Timothy. And while you're uh, finding your way to First Timothy there, I just want to tell you that your answer to life's most important question really changes everything about you. It changes your orientation. It changes your eternal destination. changes your priorities, your perspective. And life's most important question, in case you you weren't exactly sure what that might be, it's not what I'm going to eat here in the next 50, you know, 50 minutes here. That's actually as important as that is, men. That isn't life's most important questions. It's not what's on TV later today. The life's most important question is what will you do with Jesus Christ? That is life's most important question. Your answer to that question changes everything about you. And when you come to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1 deals with the central issue of life. And it is really calling Christians to orient all of their life around Christ. Now, if you... uh, If you're here today and you're just kind of investigating Christianity or perhaps you're a skeptic, you're kind of unsure of all these different things. Let me just tell you that if you're going to understand Christianity and especially Christians, you have to understand and know Christ. And so in first Timothy chapter one, you could give no better explanation of what Christ does in the lives of his people than what is found in chapter one, beginning in verses 12 through 17, where Paul gives his personal testimony before he knew Christ. He said he was a blasphemer and he was a persecutor. He was a violent aggressor. He hated Jesus. He locked up Christians. That was his life. But when you come to verse 15, he says this, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. When Paul wrote that, what he is saying is, listen, I came to a place to realize that all of life, I was created to know God through the person and the work of Jesus. And he said, when I came to realize that I had missed the mark, he was very religious. He was set apart to God in the sense that he was trying to earn his way into God's favor. But he didn't realize that his life was missing the mark when he wasn't trusting in Jesus. And so he said, Christ came into the world to save sinners. If you're a person who is trying to find life apart from God, you've got some sort of idols you think that are offering you some sort of happiness or success or peace or identity, you are missing the mark. You are sinning. Paul said, I came to the realization that Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I'm foremost of all. And he does this for a reason, verse 16, so that I might find, so for this reason, I found mercy so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Christ intends to turn his people into examples of what grace personified looks like. And all of a Christian's orientation is verse 17. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever Amen. Once you answer the question, who is the Lord of your life, then your life will take on that orientation. For the Christian, it's Jesus Christ. And we want to follow his word. So chapter one establishes our identity in Jesus. Chapters two through six in the book of first Timothy, they tell us how do Christians live? What does it really look like When you were a part of the church, part of the body of Christ, and he says in chapter 3, verse 15, that's the whole reason why he's writing. 
you can see this chapter three, verse 15. You might want to look at it. He says, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. This is how we live chapters two through six. So today's question is a, is a question that right now in Christian culture, we don't even want to touch. In fact, you're going to come, as we make our way through this book, and we've come to chapter 2, verses 9 through 15, chances are very few people have ever even heard this passage even preached. It's just like avoided. In fact, it's one of the reasons why topical preaching is so very popular in contemporary Christianity, because you can jump over passages that this is going to really go against the grain of culture. In fact, this is going to make some people unhappy. This isn't vogue. But remember, the Christian's orientation is Christ is Lord. He's king. He's the immortal, invisible one. We want to do as his word says. And that question is this. How in the world does a woman live who is set apart to God? What does holiness in a woman's heart really look like? Now, if your orientation is not Jesus Christ, if he's not the Lord of your life, in the gap will come your influences, whether it be on TV, movies, media. Uh, there's a, a whole host of magazines that will want to help shape your morals, your values, your attitudes, and your perspective. It is called the world. And there is a world system that tries to live life apart from God, and it does have its values and its ideals. In fact, you can't go to a grocery store without these, like, these women that are like even you know, airbrushed to look absolutely perfect. Keep just really capturing your attention saying this is what the ideal looks like. It looks like me and then it's got a whole magazine to talk about the philosophy that comes with that. And literally millions and millions of people, it is a culture apart from Christ that shapes their morals, their values, and their perspectives. But for the Christian woman... How is it that a Christian woman experiences the joy of holiness, of being set apart to God in their life? Well, that's where you come to chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. And let me tell you, in context here, remember just last week, Matt had covered this verse 8. He's talking about what does behavior look like in the church. And in chapter 2, verse 8, he says, Therefore I want men in every place to pray, lifting up, Holy hands without wrath and dissension. He addresses, he starts with men. He's going to come back to men and specifically men in leadership beginning in chapter three. He says, I want men to be holy. I don't want them fighting, but I want them set apart to be. I I want them to have depth of their life where they are people of prayer. And in the same vein of holiness, of being set apart to God, he then actually starts talking about the characteristics of holiness in a woman's heart. And the first one is, beginning in verse 9, is that she has discernment in how she dresses. So look at verse 9. He says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. And you're like, Arch! okay, wait a second here. Whoa. Paul spells it out here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, I want women 
to adorn themselves. The, the Greek word there is kosmios. It's where we get our word cosmetic from. And it has the idea of being proper, attractive. He says, I want women to be attractive, to adorn themselves. And he talks about what does this really look like? What is beauty in the eyes of God? And he says, with proper clothing. The word proper has the idea of being decent, orderly, respectful. What he's saying is that I want women to dress and adorn themselves a way that is attractive and that shows that you respect God and you respect yourself. I want you to be beautiful and I want that beauty to be conveyed in how you're dressing. He says, I want them to be to adorn themselves with proper clothing. And then he says the word modestly. And this has the idea of that you have modesty mixed with humility. And it, the, behind this root of this word is the idea of shame. And that is that you will not dress in such a way that is going to bring shame upon you or upon God, but that you are dressing modestly and discreetly. Our, our English word sobriety comes from the Greek word that's translated discreetly. That means that you have sound mind and good senses on how you're dressing. And they says, and not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. Now, let me just tell you a little bit of background about what is going on here. Paul is writing to who? Timothy. Timothy is a pastor where? Anybody know? Ephesus. That's right. He's a pastor in Ephesus. And in Ephesus, they have the great temple to Artemis or Diana. And she is the love goddess. She's the goddess of fertility. They have this huge temple. In this temple, they have not only all these singers and dancers. There's a large bank there. But they have a thousand plus temple prostitutes that make their living celebrating this, this woman, this, this mother goddess. And so they, they ply their trade in the city of Ephesus. And they dress in a certain way that is identifiable. It is actually what Paul is describing there. Now, it was for women of wealth, they would sometimes, and, and this doesn't happen today, but they, in their hair, they'd have it all braided up, and they would literally put like all these jewels and as much gold in their hair as possible. They would make noise, kind of even moving their head. You know, it's like, ding, 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 you know. Okay, and I'm really glad that that style is not in. And so women of wealth would do that, okay? But especially these temple prostitutes, this is how... They not only had a certain dress about them, but they did things with their hair. In fact, I was reading up on this. There's an ancient writer by the name of Xenophon of Ephesus, and he describes women with hair braided in such a way in a procession of the goddess uh, Artemis as erotically attractive. And it was meant to catch men's attention, to create this idea of attraction, to acquire their base desire of lust, and to draw them to themselves. And this is what Paul is writing about. He's saying, I want you to show that you respect yourself and your God by how you dress. I don't want you dressing in some sort of seductive, ostentatious, ostentatious way that you are trying to draw the attention to yourself. And if you were wearing like, and he says about these costly garments, it's not the idea that it's wrong to wear expensive clothing. But it is wrong if you're wearing expensive clothing to draw the envy of other women. And I actually did quite a bit of research in preparing and thinking through this passage and talked to quite a few different women. It was very interesting that ladies told me that ladies 
and just in general, not only dress to kind of perhaps attract the attention of men, but oftentimes they dress to attract the attention of other women and want to be noticed by them. And what Paul is saying, that isn't the attitude of the heart of holiness. Now, if you're like, if you wore a brooch in your hair today, don't like feel like, oh my, not today. Why did I do that? Like the next Bible verse, you like stick your hand and like pull it off. You're like, okay, you don't have to worry about that. Like, oh, why didn't I read the passage ahead before I came to church this morning? Okay. You don't have to worry about that. Okay. Because God wants you to dress beautifully. It's not wrong to have nice clothes or gold or jewelry. But the issue is the issue of the heart. He's not condemning the use of clothes. He's condemning the misuse of clothes. And he wants you to dress and care for yourself and adorn yourself in such a way that celebrates God's goodness, that you can find enjoyment and you experience grace. But today, what has happened is we've got women in wholesale fashion that are, that are dressing in such a way that is highly provocative. In fact, this gets started now even before girls even are teenagers. And, it's, and, and this is something that was a huge issue back in Paul's day 2,000 years ago. It's a huge issue today. How does a woman dress? Some of you are familiar with a woman by the name of Kim Alexis. You might recognize her. Here's a couple pictures of her. She was one of America's first supermodels in the 1980s. She appeared on over five, the cover of over 500 magazines, including Vogue and Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition, which you should not receive, okay? And if you've got Sports Illustrated, just kind of do it like our house. When that hits, it's immediately thrown away. She appeared, and she was, and, and you, you recognize her. You, you can't help, even if you never bought any of those magazines, she was the face of the supermodels. But then on January 21st, she had a rather revolutionary experience, and life changed for her completely. January 21st, 1990, Kim Alexis asked Jesus to take control over her life, and now she counsels women to avoid some of her mistakes. In an article on her thoughts on self-respect, sex, life, abortion, and marriage, she said this, and I want you to listen to this woman. She says, many women are playing with fire in the way they dress. Dressing like a floozy tells the world, look at me, want me, lust after me. I'm easy, and you can have me. Displaying intimate parts of the body is a form of advertising for sex. She goes on to say, dressing modestly tells the world, I respect myself, and I insist on being treated with respect. Alexis says, it is possible to be stylish and attractive without wearing something that is too short, low cut, or see-through. I know it's real quiet in here because we have hit a vein. Let me just tell you, women, you can attract and stimulate a man's base desire for lust. You can. You can do it by the clothes that you wear, how tight they are. But let me tell you, that by dressing in such a way, no man would ever want his wife to be like that or his mother or his daughters because men don't find that honorable or mature. You can attract their attention. You can appeal to their lust. And there are many women that do just that. But in the heart of the man, they're like, I, I might have an attraction to that. 
But that is not attractive. When you wear, if you choose to wear revealing clothes, all it does is reveal your insecurities. That you lack moral strength, character, development, stability, maturity. And it is not highly desirable. So how does a woman then discern the fine line between proper dress and dressing to be the center of attention? Well, let me just tell you that holiness always starts with the heart. It starts with the heart. You've got to ask yourself, why am I dressing the way I'm dressing? Is it to extol the grace and the beauty of womanhood? Is it that I, that I just to enjoy and to feel good about yourself, to enjoy the clothing that you have, or maybe it was a gift? Or are you trying to call attention to yourself? Like one woman described it, she was announced before she even walked into the room. You're dressing to make a statement. You want all eyes upon you. Or worse yet, you're attempting to allure men sexually. This is what Paul is after. He's saying, you know, prior to Christ, that may have been your way of life. But now you're set apart to the very one who has cleansed you and made you clean and holy. He wants to experience joy and life. He wants to experience the fullness that comes from walking with Christ and holiness. And so the question you have to ask is, what is the heart behind what you're wearing? You see, you are not what you wear. So what is the heart behind the clothing that you've got on? Now, let me just tell you, there is a bandwidth of grace and appropriateness, and it can't be measured with a ruler or with a, like, a measuring tape. You, you can't do it. You can't legislate, well, it'd only be this high, or you can't this low, this tight. It really, it comes from a heart that just says, God, is this honoring to you? And so that's what you do. Because Paul says, I want women to be beautiful, but to do so modestly, discreetly, not with braided hair and gold and pearls and, and costly garments. And if, and if you feel inadequate, and from the reading I've done, a lot of women feel inadequate. And so they're going to dress in such a way that makes them at least feel like, well, if people are noticing me, then I must not be as adequate as I'm feeling in my heart. God wants you to find your identity, your security, your purpose, your peace, your joy in him. And there's a verse you might want to write down. Second Corinthians chapter three, verse five. And it says this, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. He wants you to know that you're okay, that he loves you. And that gives you a strength of character. And that gives you the ability to dress in such a way that is respectful to yourself and to your God. Let me give you another characteristic of holiness in a woman's heart. It's actually found in the very next verse. Paul says, after he describes a woman who's now showing discernment in how she dresses, he then talks about this, a woman that's pursuing holiness is delighting in good works. So he says, verse 10, but rather by means of good works, rather in dressing in such a way that is calling attention upon yourself, perhaps even the wrong attention, Rather, clothe yourself with the character of Christ, he says, verse 10, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for a woman making a claim to godliness. He's saying, you want beauty, but beauty flows from the inside out. And that's where good works come from. 
Good works don't earn you favor with God. They simply don't earn you salvation. But when you come to Christ, you realize that Christ wants to do his work through you. And that's what good works are. Any work, any act, any smile, any word of encouragement that is beneficial that you do because of your relationship with Christ and your reliance upon him. These things are beneficial to people, but they're always beautiful to God. And so he wants women beautiful and just exposing that inner beauty that just comes from a life that's lived in joy and lived in caring and loving others. And so he says, don't be concerned about your clothing. Be really concerned that you're clothed in the good works as is proper for a woman making a claim to what? To godliness. And there were women that this is, I mean, this is the way of life. This is how to really live. And Jesus is the one that really esteemed women. In the culture in which this book was written, 1 Timothy, uh, women were really low in status, Uh, especially in the Roman culture. I mean, some of the things I read about how women were treated, I mean, they would never even appear oftentimes in the presence of their family. They just, they were kind of like, they got married and they just were isolated. And in the Jewish culture, even though that is not what the Old Testament prescribed, Jewish women were oftentimes treated as second class. But Jesus comes along and in his earthly ministry, he's got all these women and they're ministering to him. They have at his crucifixion, his death, and the first person to see him in the, in the resurrected state. You know who all, all of these, all of them were women. Book of Acts, Dorcas, Lydia, Priscilla. You got godly women who are thriving. They got ministries. They're esteemed. They're valued. You got Phoebe. She's the one that carries the epistle of the book of Romans. And in the, in the book of Romans in chapter 16, there are eight different women that are listed with key ministries. They're acknowledged because in Christ, we are all one. We are spiritually equal. And it is Jesus that elevated women to the status that they should be absolutely equal. So when Paul is writing these things, he's saying, I want women to be clothed with good works, having a beauty that comes from within. And really, we are blessed here at Fellowship. We got a church full of women like this. And it is awesome. They're full of grace. You see it in their eyes. You see it in their smile. It is Jesus alive and well. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about. They are clothed with the good works as is proper as a woman making a claim of godliness. Let me give you a third characteristic of holiness in a woman's heart. It's found in verse, verses 12 through 14. And actually, excuse me, in verse 11 here, and that is that she is developing her faith. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Here, Paul is saying women must, it's actually an imperative, they must receive instruction. God wants his women continuing to grow in maturity. He wants you to experience the fullness of life. And so the Greeks, they didn't actually even feel that a woman was capable of learning. And many Jewish rabbis would not give any women any attention in terms of learning. What Paul is saying, it should not be that way. So he says a woman must receive, and and he actually qualifies how she's to receive it, but the point is that she must receive instruction. She must be taught. Now, when he says a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, he's setting up what he's going to be talking about in verses 12 through 14, where there were some women that were being disruptive in worship. They were trying to take over. 
They had taken the freedoms that the gospel gave them and they were taking to a level and extreme that God never intended where they were trying to overrule. And so he says they are to receive it quietly versus being the ones who are the teaching or they're being argumentative, but they must receive instruction. Like Peter, his final words were that that people are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was, that's what God intends for his women. If you're going to grow in holiness, you've got to grow in your understanding of the word. And you've got to grow in your understanding of prayer. There has got to be a depth of relationship between you and the Lord. And spiritual teaching actually helps foster that. Now, you might find yourself in a situation where, you know, there's hardly any influence in your life to grow spiritually. And then you might go, well, I, I, I think I've kind of given up. God wants you holy, set apart to himself. And how he does that is he shapes you and he molds you. He brings maturity and maturity matters as you become a woman of the word, a woman with depth. And when you're a woman of depth, you've got a sense of security and identity. It gives you a sense of freedom and of joy of living. And whether you're a man or a woman, it takes years to learn to take God at his word, which is the definition of faith. One lady told me it took her years to really believe that God cherished her. She believed that that God accepted her. But to really understand that you're fully loved, you're completely accepted, even when you mess up, even in your sin. Well, it's by growing in grace and the knowledge of Christ and his word That is how that happens. And maturity matters because it affects everything about your attitudes, your relationships, how you go about your job, how you treat your kids, how you treat your spouse if you're married. Maturity matters. Let me give you another characteristic that he highlights, and that's verses 12 through 14. And that is that a woman who has holiness of heart, she is deferring to her elders or her pastors. Now look at verse 12. He says, But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. This one verse in the Bible has been misused and completely abused. And so I'd like to take a couple minutes to explain to you clearly what this verse is saying. This verse is not teaching that all women are to be submissive to all men, okay? And I know that it is, it is mischaricatured that way, and, it's, and there's some guys who are, have hard hearts, and they're like, ah, women just need to submit. You know, kind of that's their mentality. That's not what this verse is saying. Let's take a look at it. He says, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. She is not to be the teacher. And the word to teach here, this is, this is not just a passing on of information. This is a unique word that speaks of like giving uh, like what a rabbi or a teacher or a pastor or an elder does. They're giving spiritual instruction, spiritual admonition. They're calling people to listen, to believe. They are exhorting them. It is giving them a spiritual charge. It is actually what's taking place even right now. He says, I do not want women to be in the role of a pastor or an elder. 
In fact, in chapter 3, he goes on to talk about the qualifications of an elder. If you want to see it, if you want to jump ahead to see what we're going to look at next week, he said that overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. It is going to be very hard for a woman to be the husband of one wife. Teaching, always in the pastoral epistles, is always done by a man when it is when the church is gathered for spiritual instruction. It is, so when there's authoritative doctrinal instruction, God says when it's men and women, when they've come together for the worship of God and the teaching of his word, I want it to be done by a man. Now, if you're going, whoa, 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 wait a second here. Our culture does not agree with that statement. And so verse 12 gets jettisoned from a lot of folks' Bible. If not physically, pragmatically, just skipped over. But think of it this way. God wants us to follow his word because he knows what is best and he wants it done his way. And any authority that a pastor or an elder has is not based upon his own personhood. It is based on the authority of the word of God. I have no authority uh, on my own. Absolutely none. I have the word. And so we teach the word. And God says, I want teaching when it comes to Bible doctrine, Bible exhortation. When the church is gathered, I want it done by men. Now, evangelistic witnessing, counseling, teaching subjects other than Bible and doctrine, teaching of other women, teaching children. Absolutely. In fact, there are many women that are gifted teachers. And frankly, some of these women teachers that I've heard are a lot better than most of the men. They got a sense of depth. Both sides of their brain work. But the issue, and, I, and I, I'm just telling you, that it is. They think relationally as well as they, they see the logic in oftentimes. It's not an issue of aptitude. It's not an issue of intellectual ability. For the women, it's an issue of like, I am submitting to God and his word and his authority. And if this is what he says, this is how it will be. And a woman of holiness she is going to defer to her pastors and her elders. And so when it says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Teaching and quiet are being kind of placed against each other. She's not to take that role. Now, apparently there were some women in Ephesus that were trying to do such. Maybe they were being actually coaxed on by some of these false teachers. And he's saying, no, it shouldn't be that way. When we're in mixed company, and we're coming under for the instruction of the word, for doctrinal instruction, God says, I want a man to do it. Now, if you're thinking like, well, wait a second here, uh, subordination like that, hmm, that, that, that means inequality. Actually not. I want you to think of Jesus. Jesus, when he came to this earth, he completely submitted to the will of his father. Was Jesus in any respect inferior to the Father? Was he? Answer, absolutely not. There are different roles. It is not an issue of inferiority. It's an issue of submission. And so when when it comes to pastors and elders, a woman of holiness, she's going to defer. And nowhere in the New Testament do you find a woman pastor or a woman elder or a woman giving instruction to both men and women, it, it just didn't exist. Now, let me tell you what happened, though. 
you do have women that were gifted as teachers. And if there was, and this is really interesting that Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, because let me give you a little bit of background. There is a woman in this church, and you're familiar with her. Her name is Priscilla. Priscilla and Aquila, you find them together in the Bible. This was one of several women that when Paul was in Ephesus for three years, that sat under the teaching of Paul for three years when he taught the whole counsel of God. If anybody knew the scriptures, well, it would be Priscilla. In fact, on one occasion, you find this in Acts chapter 18. There's a guy by the name of Paulus. He is familiar with the baptism of John the Baptist, but not so familiar with Jesus. On his teaching ministry, it is Priscilla and Aquila, after he gets done speaking, that explain to him the way of Jesus and the counsel of God more fully. And that just sets him off on an even completely better trajectory. And so women are fully capable and can do it. But godly women submit to God's word and say, hey, if that's what the Lord says, I'm going to do as he said. Priscilla didn't try to take over as a pastor. She actually submitted herself to it. Now, that, there are some reasons why. And the reasons why are given to us in verses 12 and 13. He says, first of all, because Adam was formed first. <clears throat> he says, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise or have authority over a man, but to remain quiet. I don't want them to be the elder or the pastor over men. But he says, for, the, for this first reason, for it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And what he's talking about is God's order of creation. The reason this was set up, and the reason this isn't just something for local instruction, that, but this is universal, is that he says that God set this up from creation. Okay, and he says, just like it's the right of the firstborn, God is the one that chose to create man first. And so he says, I want them to be the spiritual leaders, spiritual leaders in their home, spiritual leaders in the church, which is the household of God, which is in many respects like a family. So he says it was Adam who was first created, then Eve. Then he gives the second reason. And he said, you find that in verse 14, he says, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell in to transgression. What he's saying here is that when sin entered into the world, Genesis three, let me tell you how the serpent did it. Did he appeal to Adam? No. He subverted his leadership. He went straight to the woman. And then he started enticing her and presenting her the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And look how good this looks. And this can make you wise. And this can make you like God. God's holding out to you on you. You need to do this. And she listened. She saw. She looked. King desirous, everything he was saying. And she actually bit into that fruit. And she ate of it. And she was deceived. Adam, on the other hand, he watched this happen. What Eve should have done is saying, hey, what, you sound, what you're saying may sound good, but you need to deal with Adam here. That didn't happen. And Adam became real passive. And he watched this take place. And Adam, when he sinned, he did it with his eyes wide open. He saw, he knew, he was the one who told Eve, don't even touch that tree. And he watched when she gave it to him. He actively, with his eyes wide open, disobeyed, and he plunged humanity into sin. And so what Paul is saying is that it was by virtue of the fact that the woman was deceived 
I don't want her to be the spiritual leader in the church. I need and desire and want godly men. And he's going to tell us what, does that, what kind of men those look like beginning in chapter 3. This is, this is extremely important. Men, you have got to step up. All these godly women in our church deserve strong, quality, competent spiritual leadership. Praise God we got good elders. But we need to develop more men who are taking an active role and developing in a godly way who will be able to serve as godly leaders. Because these women of God deserve that kind of leadership. Because a godly woman committed to holiness, you know what she's doing? She is deferring to her pastors and elders. And you've got a lot of people, a lot of ladies around the country, godly women, and they're languishing under poor spiritual leadership because men aren't taking God all that seriously or the role of leadership all that well. That leads us to the fifth characteristic of holiness and of a woman's heart. It's found in verse 15. It is actually one of the most difficult verses in the New Testament to interpret, okay? And there are a variety of different interpretations. I'm not going to go through all of them, but let's take a look at this verse. Now you'll understand like, whoa, that's a tough one. Look at this. He says, but women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. All right. Let's just close the Bible right now and you guys figure that out at Fellowship Family, all right? Okay. Now, let me... Let's, let's take a few minutes to talk about that. First of all, I want you to notice that he's talking about women, plural, they. So he's not talking about Eve. But what he's addressing here is the fact that a woman of holiness is devoting herself to her children. He's saying, but women will be preserved through the bearing of children. Now, that word preserve could literally be translated saved or rescued. Now, He is not saying that, well, if a woman's bearing children, she's going to experience spiritual salvation. Is that the gospel? Women, you need to get married and have children. Is that the gospel? Oh, come on, man. This is fellowship, right? The answer to that is absolutely not. That's not the gospel, okay? The gospel is that you turn from your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes from faith alone in Christ alone. The word saved, so-so, it could be Rescue, in fact, often, a lot of times, it's used not in a spiritual salvation, but to be actually rescued from physical danger or from harm or for being trapped from something. And let me just tell you what I think this verse is saying. That Eve and, and all women are rescued from the stigma of being the one in whom was deceived that actually allows the entrance of sin. They are saved from that stigma by now influencing and developing a godly generation. Because remember he said in verse 14, it was the woman being deceived. But she shall be saved, and I think what he's, Paul is driving at here, she's going to be saved from that stigma because she now has Christ, and she's now making the investments of love. And now he actually talks about the qualities that make for a great mother, for of faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Now, that doesn't mean that all women are to be married or all women are to have children because it's clear, obviously, from the scriptures that some women are called to be set apart to God and are not to marry, just like there's some men like that. But in general, many women do get married and many women do have children. 
And their devotion to their children changes everything. Eve, the great-great-great-grandmother, may have been deceived. But women are not deceived any longer. They are growing in Christ, and it's their faith and their love and their sanctity. They're being set apart to holiness with self-restraint. This is what makes them great. You see, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. And there is not a mother who has made an investment in her children that ever regrets that investment. I know that you might feel like the invisible mom, you know, and no one notices. Women have told me that daughters can be hard on their mothers and sons can be oftentimes just overlook them and take them for granted. But you will never regret the investments you make in your children. And you know, it's interesting at graduations and at weddings and family gatherings, it has a way of affirming the tremendous investments a mother makes in her children. You know, like I remember being at my wedding and standing up there and, you know, like all of a sudden a crane is going to come down that aisle, right? You know, and you're, and you're scanning, you see your friends and your buddies there and all, all those guys and stuff. You did all that crazy stuff in college and they showed up and they're dressed halfway decent. You know, and you make your way and you got your relatives and they're kind of looking at you funny like, how could that little kid up there get married? You're standing up there and you make your way to that second row and then, you know, dum, 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 dum. Remember that? And then you look and there's your mother. Whoa. And your knees just start buckling. Right? Because that woman made an investment that brought you to this place. And ladies, I know that you feel a lot of pressure that your only value is on how much you can make in a paycheck. And some of you women who are like, oh, I, don't, I don't even get a paycheck, you feel a lot of pressure that you need to have one. Your value, whether you're in the workforce or not, doesn't come from a paycheck. It comes from God and the investments he's making through you especially in your children. And when you have a woman of holiness, she's devoted to the development of her children. And you know where this all starts? Holiness always starts in the heart. So daily, just dedicate yourself to purity and devotion to Christ. Love Christ. Live well. And just leave the results to him. Holiness matters. And it always starts with the heart. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for an amazing passage. And I pray, Father, that you would use the words of Scripture to continue to shape and fashion and mold the hearts, the desires, and the women of this church. May you be glorified in their lives. We ask this as we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.